friends. You know, most of you know anyway, that this weekend marks a year since Amy and I lost our son. And the loss and the manner of the loss are perhaps the worst thing a parent can go through. A few people I know have wondered or even asked the question of whether our faith in God has been shaken. I want to explain why it hasn't. I want to explain why I believe now, as much as ever or more than ever, that I believe that there is a God and that he has come into this world in the person of Jesus of Nazareth and that this Jesus both died and rose again for us, as the scriptures testify. Now, why do I believe this? After a year when we lost our son, we lost our father, and now we face such uncertain and stressful times. Well, not mainly, partly, but not mainly because I simply find Christianity to be true, intellectually true. I find it much more intellectually fulfilling than the alternatives. I've been around a while. No comments, please. I've heard a lot of arguments against the truth of Christianity. Now and then I even collect a few books from the popular atheists. And uh, I, I just want to hear their view and, and analyze things. And I've come to believe, more and more as I get older, that the intellectual hurdles of believing in naturalism, that the naturalism, that the physical universe is the only thing that exists, are much greater than the hurdles in believing in theism, that both God and the physical universe exist. But if you ask me the main reason I continue to believe, it's a little bit different than that. And maybe I can do no better than to quote the words of the abashed and amazed soldiers in John chapter 7, when questioned on why they did not follow orders and arrest Jesus. They simply said this, No one ever spoke like this. And that's where I am. I simply have not, in my readings of history or philosophy or the classics of human literature or my own human experience, come across a figure like Jesus, someone who taught and lived like he did. This was a man who transcended all that I've ever seen of human understanding and boundaries. Could a few first century Jewish uh, peasants like the disciples have made him up. To me, that seems like a bigger miracle than the incarnation itself. This Jesus is different. He's confusing. He's demanding. He's comforting. He's challenging. He's frustrating. And yet his teachings are so beautiful, so profound. They go beyond what anything I've ever seen or heard from a man or a woman. Let me give you an example. Uh, one that's doubly appropriate uh, for right now, and uh, it's doubly appropriate because in the in the scripture it's set right after the uh, the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, so right at the beginning of Passion Week, where we are going to find ourselves, and also because Jesus uses a metaphor um, that now in the spring, as we see seeds taking shape into the beauty and the forms of of the daffodils and the tulips and the hyacinth, uh, the, it's very um, apropos right now. Here, here's how I would sum up what Jesus is going to teach, and then we'll look at it. He's teaching us this beautiful, profound truth that only what dies can fully live. Only what dies can truly, fully live. And that is true of Jesus, and that is true of us. This teaching is recorded in John chapter 12, 
verses 23 through 26. It says this, Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. And they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. And Philip went to Andrew, and Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now again, this occurs right after the triumphal entry, when Jesus has ridden into the city, Jerusalem, on a donkey. People wave palm branches, they shouted praise and songs. And in most people, it looks like Jesus' stock is on the rise. More, it looks like the crowd is welcoming him as the Messiah. And maybe this is why the Greeks want this audience, try to figure out who this guy really is. Jesus uses their invitation as a sign to talk about the meaning of the week and of his death. For he knows what they don't seem to know, even though he's told the disciples, that in a few short days he will die the most shameful and painful death that cruel Rome could devise. So he begins by changing the meaning of what everyone will soon see. The cross is ugly and shameful, yes, but with a deeper understanding, it is also the very way that Jesus' beauty and glory will be seen. Let Rome display her glory and wonder and power by ivory thrones and golden crowns and marching armies, Jesus says that the glory of this kingdom, the heart of this kingdom, will be seen in the sacrificial love of the king himself. And then he expands upon this by a very simple and very profound metaphor, that of a seed planted in the soil, buried yet still full of life. Unless a grain of seed falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. Have you ever held a small seed in your hand like this, like this grain of wheat? What do you have? Well, something that from outward appearances is not that much different than a pebble. It has the same size, shape, just a little bit heavier. An alien or a young child would look at the two, the pebble and, and the grain, and they might easily mistake one for the other. But the seed, is fundamentally different. It is full of life. And, and the life it contains is greater than the size and the weight and the glory of the seed by an almost infinite degree. I, I want to show you something. This is the seed of a giant sequoia. It comes in a cone. There are five to 500 to 1,000 of these in a cone. Each seed weighs less than an ounce and is smaller than a BB. And this is the picture of the base of a sequoia that is 27 feet in diameter, almost 300 feet high, and that weighs 2.7 million pounds. And yet here's the thing, right? That seed of the giant sequoia will never be anything other than a tiny speck of plant matter unless one thing 
and one thing only occurs unless it falls to the ground and dies. It dies as a seed. The outer husk breaks down and shrivels away. Its seed status, its seed life is gone, but because, only because it's growing into something more wonderful and majestic than you could ever see but just by looking at the seed itself. Now, step back. Why does Jesus, instead of answering the immediate question about whether he will meet with the Greeks or not, instead start talking about seeds and dying? Well, because he's applying this seed principle to himself in his own impending death upon the cross. He goes willingly to death because there is a harvest that can only come by the seed of his life going into the ground in death. You see, Jesus came not just to teach about God's ways, not just to correct our misunderstanding about religion and ethics. He did that. He not only taught it, he, he modeled it. But unless our sin problem is dealt with, unless we are changed, we're like, we're like a bird trapped in a cage, hearing someone talk about the beauty and majesty of light. Nice words, but... We need help. We need to get out of here. We need to be changed. And that's what the cross is. It is the way that God is able to offer us forgiveness while still being just. That is, while still upholding the justice of, and ethics of this world. Sin and evil and greed are wrong. And no amount of minimization or rationalization will change that. They therefore have an appropriate judgment upon them. But God has chosen, God has chosen out of love and through Jesus to bear the judgment of sin upon himself so that he could forgive us while still upholding the rightness and justice. And because we are able to be forgiven, we are also able to be changed and given a new birth, a new kind of life, a life that begins in the here and now to change us, but finds fulfillment in the age to come. And that is the other reason the deeper reason that Jesus gives us this teaching. Because the seed principle, the idea that, that only what dies can be fully made alive, applies not just to Jesus and his kingdom, but to us individually as well. Now, to be sure we get that this applies to us, Jesus ends this section by saying, whoever serves me must follow me. That is, where Jesus is headed, the cross is where we must also head. Now, what does this mean? I mean, there's only one cross. There's only one mediator, one person who can die for the sins of another. So how does this apply to us? Well, it applies in two ways. Or better, it has two layers or levels of application to us. Like a building has both a foundation, but also the structure built upon that foundation. And the first and foundational level of application is simply this. He's talking about our salvation. In a sense, we can only come to Christ and seek the healing and forgiveness from him when we give up on ourselves, trying to save ourselves by our good works, our good efforts, our, our, by our own smarts. We're like a man <clears throat> with an ailment who doesn't want to go to a doctor. Now, not that I know any men like that, but it's conceivable, right? So he's got something wrong, but he resists going to the doctor. He, he tries to ignore it. That doesn't work. He he searches on WebMD, um, doesn't work. 
He even borrows his wife's essential oils, and what do you know, they don't work either. So he gives up trying to fix himself, and he calls the doc for help. We try to improve ourselves, to make up for our sins, or maybe to ignore them, to do good works or support good causes, hoping, hoping that it balances out the badness. But only when we come to realize that we have a heart problem, a heart problem that only Jesus can fix. Only then do we die to ourselves enough to come to Jesus and find healing. We have to die to ourselves in admitting we have a sin problem that only he and not we can fix. If we refuse the doctor, we refuse the healing. As D.L. Moody put it, God sends no one away empty except those who are full of themselves. And that's why Jesus says, anyone who loves their life loses it, while whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. We can get confused by the language here if we don't understand that in Jesus' time and culture, to love or hate something, especially when you pair those two concepts together in the same breath, they mean not primarily an emotional thing, but a volitional thing. It's more about a choice than an emotion. So the idea is that if we choose to love our life, that is to choose self-seeking and self-advancement and self-healing and a self-focus, we will lose it. But if we reject those things, if we hate our life in this world, in this way, that is when we find true life. And the healing, this true life, goes far beyond our original health, as it were. Jesus is not saying we simply have an unended life um, or that he makes our life better in this world's terms. No. He's got something far deeper in mind, a, a deeper healing that makes us actually a different kind of being one who is able to live in this new world, a new creation, and new kingdom that he is bringing. That phrase, eternal life, it can be a little confusing to us in English. Not confusing, but maybe misleading. Remember, Jesus didn't talk in English. This, these words are recorded in the Greek language. And in the Greek language, the idea of life here, the word life, is actually a different word that Jesus used when he talked about uh hating our life. In, in that first time, talk, when he talked about hating our life, he used a, a Greek word called suke, which generic basic word for life. can use it about uh, humans or plants or animals. But when he talked about the eternal life that we will come to, that we will inherit, he uses a different word, zoe, which always in the New Testament is referring to this life of God himself. So, He's talking about a life that's fundamentally different than this life. It, it goes deeper, it's broader, has a different quality. And that second word, eternal, kind of brings this out as well. That word literally is just the word Greek word for eon. So the phrase would be life of the eon. But the eon here is understood by everyone to, to mean the eon to come, the age to come, the coming time when God redoes all things, when he brings forth the new heaven and new earth. What the phrase means then is this. Whoever chooses against the life of this world, the self-seeking life, will be like a seed which in their very death, their very death becomes an occasion of a new kind of life, a life with God in his kingdom, an eternal life, a life of the eon 
that's suitable for that time and suitable for that kingdom. <clears throat> this is all involved in that first foundational application. Come to Jesus with your life, give it to him, and you will receive it back, not as a stone, but as a seed. Only what dies can fully live. But there is another level of application here, right? In which we can live day by day, just as we live in a house daily after it's been built once on the foundation. And, and that level is to apply this main idea that only what dies can come to life and apply it to the daily choices that we have before us. We're not yet in the eon to come. We're not yet in the new creation. So every day we choose. Are we going to make choices that reflect that kingdom and are like seeds planted into a field that will be harvested then? Or are we making choices that are like stones that simply fall on the ground and then they're, they're nothing? What I'm trying to say is what is true of our life as a whole is also true of our life in its parts. We die to self and then we find that life, true life, is there and nowhere else. What an interesting phrase, dying to self. What does this look like? Well, dying to self in this way means, I, I put it like this, I consciously choose to let go of something or to do something which goes against my perceived self-interest in order to love God or other people. Let me say that again. <clears throat> dying to self means I consciously choose to let go of something or to do something which goes against my perceived self-interest in order to love God or others. Let's flesh this out. Let's list a few things. One of the big things, I, I put it like this, giving up our self-goals, our self-goals. What I mean by that is giving up goals which we have chosen out of our self-love instead of our love for God or other people. We have dreams. We have goals of how we want our career to look, how we want our finances to look, how we want our home and our marriage to look, how we want our health to look, are these from God? Or did we probably subconsciously choose these things without regard to what God wants in our lives, or what's good for other people, but just simply on what we want, our own self-focus and desires? Now, I'm not saying quit the job. I'm not saying sell the house and live on the street. I'm saying that we need to let God have control out of all these things, out of the outcomes. We need to consciously give these things back to God and ask him to give them back to us in his way, in his timing, in the shape that he knows are right for us. Dying to self also means giving up sinful habits. Maybe we enjoy them or get some kind of pleasure out of them, but we know that it keeps us from God. It hurts our relationship with him, or maybe it hurts our relationship with other people it keeps us from loving them and serving them fully. It means giving up our self-focus and our own comfort. And again, this doesn't mean we sell the house and we start living in a shack. It means we choose, consciously choose, to not organize our life and choices by the simple question, Do does this make my life better or easier? Does this feel good? Does this bring me self-fulfillment? But instead, we're asking, God, do these choices, how can I give them to you so that they affect other people for their eternal good? It means giving of our possessions and our money sometimes in the same way to help others. It means giving up my reputation, 
trying to manage what people think of me. And, and by the way, what freedom there is in all these things, right? What lessening, lessening of anxiety when I am able to truly die to these things, give them to God, and trust that he will bring life into them as he sees fit. The great pastor and theologian J.I. Packer once wrote, Jesus Christ demands self-denial, that is, self-negation, as a necessary condition of discipleship. Self-denial is a summons to submit to the authority of God as Father and of Jesus Christ as Lord and to declare lifelong war on one's instinctive egoism. What is to be negated is not personal self or one's existence as a rational or responsible human being. Jesus does not plan to turn us into zombies, nor does he ask us to volunteer for a robot role. The required denial is of the carnal self, the egocentric, self-deifying urge with which we are born and which dominates us so ruinously in our natural state. This is the self-denial, the dying to self, that Jesus calls us to. To die to self for the good of others, to accept the humbling fact that God really does know better than I do how to run my life. And therefore, to trust him when I sense that he's pulling me to run it in a certain way to make certain choices. Again, this is not a call to servitude and death. It is a call to freedom in life. Because Jesus is teaching us the same thing he models and demonstrates at the cross. True life can only come from what is death, from what dies. True life can only come when we die to ourselves. That is what Jesus told us. That is what I view as one example of the profound wisdom of God. Exemplified in, in, and taught by this Jewish carpenter. Now, so as I wrap this up, let me ask us a question. What is there this week in my life? What is there this week in your life that we need to die to self for? That we need to give up to God in order to serve him or to serve other people more fully? Are we able to trust him? That when we do that, we're not the loser ultimately. We have to have the faith that God takes those very things and plants them not as a stone, but as a seed. And it's only the seeds that are planted that grow into what they're supposed to be. Can you picture yourself? Can you picture yourself in that new creation, that new day, the eon that is to come? Can you picture yourself walking through a field that by God's power and his alone took the seeds that you planted in this life and made them a bountiful harvest? Pray with me as we conclude. Jesus, help us to follow you in this. Help us as we think about your own death this week, Holy Week. Help us, God, to remember that the cross is for you as well as for us, though in different ways. The cross is not final. The cross is what brings life. Help us, Lord, by your grace, to this week, plant not stones in the ground, but seeds that will rise up to a great harvest. Amen.